Four out of five dentists recommended on-pay payroll to their patients. Just kidding. Of course, dentists aren't recommending on-pay to their patients, but the American Dental Association has listed on-pay as the only payroll app in their list of endorsed programs. Dentists, farms, startups, restaurants, bars, doctors, nonprofits, gym, franchises, on-pay can handle all your clients. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, OnPay, later in the episode. Ever wished you could earn CPE credits while on the go? Introducing Earmark, the app revolutionizing the way accountants earn their CPE. Just listen to your favorite accounting and tax podcasts, whether you're driving to work, working out, or even doing chores. After you're done listening, take a quick quiz. Score 70% or higher, you've earned your CPE. It's that easy. Plus, with Earmark, you're not just ticking a box. You're actually learning valuable insights from top accounting podcasts. So why wait? Download the Earmark app now on iOS or Android and transform your listening time into CPE credits. Make the most of your day and stay ahead with Earmark. The productivity gains from generative AI, it's going to be the same as cloud accounting for bookkeeping. So 80% reduction in time to do the same task. Five times productivity bump, five to 10 times productivity bump on a lot of stuff. Like you cannot miss out on this. As an accountant, you will be the dinosaur that's still, you know, using the 10 key calculator to to do your work instead of a spreadsheet, right? Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. I'm David Leary. Like, I know you love your surveys. I know you love the data, right? Survey results data. Well, just this morning, a news article came across my plate, and it's got all the survey data in it. So, But I want to play a game with you because I want you to tell me what profession this is. So here's a, some of the findings in this survey. Go for it. Um, 90% of X report feeling burned out on a regular basis. Is that X the Twitter platform or just or, X or the sorry, anonymous X, uh, profession? The, the blank. Insert profession here, yes. Uh, more than 60% of the respondents said they, said they have considered leaving the field. Okay. To keep up with workloads, X are spending an average of 15 extra hours a week working what they call as pajama time. Nearly 60% of X in the survey feel they don't have enough in-person time for their clients. More than 75% feel overwhelmed by clients' excessive communication demands, such as frequent texting, calling, emailing outside scheduled visits. About 78% said poor staff retention and shortages are affecting their organizations. And despite all these obstacles, 83% of X said they believe AI could help, Blake. So what what profession is this? It sounds like our profession, but what profession is this? Sounds like accounting, but obviously it's not, or you it's wouldn't not. be quizzing me. Yeah. So I'm going to just go out on a limb and say, like, medical. It is doctors and physicians. Yes, and, I knew it. And it's the reason I brought this up, and I thought it was perfect timing, because I went to the doctor yesterday, and I think I tweeted about this. You know, I've been dealing since October some uh, low back pain. Yeah. And I was just driving home, because I did not get service again. It's like you're in these appointments for 48 seconds. I was like, man, if the accounting industry was as shitty as the medical industry. <laughs> but I, and then the survey came out and I'm like, yeah, I'm getting I, I basically through five or six appointments have a total of two minutes and 48 seconds of actual doctor time in that time. <laughs> and, yeah, and I still yeah. don't have a resolution. And I'm like, golly, well, what if we treated our clients that way in our profession? Uh, you know, I tried something new the other day. I was also frustrated with uh, doctors and going to offices and having to wait weeks to get an appointment. So I tried MD Live as a, you know, 
regular just customer. It's something that's offered through our insurance. Um, and so uh, I did it, and I, I, I didn't even have to meet with a doctor. I just submitted photos <laughs> through an app, which feels weird at first, but, you know, it's HIPAA compliant, right? So yeah. you send it, you take the photos with your phone. They're high res. You send them in with a description of the problem, and then the doctor can message with you. And then, uh, you know, you get your prescription, basically. And uh, it was super affordable. I mean, it was paid for by insurance. But I know if you pay a cash, it's really affordable, too. So maybe that's the way things are headed, David. It doesn't make sense for us to be making appointments to go into an office for something that requires, like, no real, like, there's a lot you can do without actually doing a physical inspection, <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't know what they, whatever the doctors call it when they pop poke you, right? And then you, you, then it's like, oh, but we can't actually do the thing that I'm going to want to do until a different appointment. Right. Now you got to come back. Come back, yeah. yeah. What a waste of time, right? Yeah, totally. So I think accountants are actually ahead, at least the listeners of our show, the smart and attractive listeners of the accounting podcast are ahead because they're building practices that are in the cloud. Uh, and they are, you know, not doing all this like in-person appointment stuff, which makes no sense. So I think we're winning, but maybe some of the profession is held back a little bit because I saw an article in CPA Practice Advisor. The headline is accounting firms should think twice about leasing solar panels. The author of this article strongly advises against leasing solar systems due to numerous complaints from businesses and homeowners about difficulties in obtaining service for their lease units, especially when the seller goes out of business. And I think, okay, that is that is true. That's probably good advice. And now I regret leasing a solar system for my house. Uh, but also, couldn't you just not have an office as an accounting firm? Wouldn't that be better? Like, let's go a little further than just not leasing solar. Let's not have that 8,000 square foot office that you don't really need. You could build a patio with solar panels and just work from there. You could have a small office where you just go to meet clients, but the staff mostly work from home, that sort of thing. Like this is this is all doable. So, David, we got some big news this week that we got to cover. You have been paying attention to the Lyft financial typo fiasco. That would actually have been a better title for this episode, perhaps. <laughs> We've got to talk about the Trump New York state court decision. Judge Engerin issued his multi-hundreds of millions of dollars uh, penalty against the Trump organization. And there's some interesting reporting requirements that the mainstream press didn't really dive into with this independent monitor that's now going to be installed at the Trump organization that I find fascinating, regardless of which way you fall on this issue, whether it was like the right decision or not. I, I think like, how is the Trump organization going to deal with this requirement now? I find interesting. I got a story about how companies are going to start to use generative AI to improve their businesses. Some actual practical examples from the Wall Street Journal. We can talk about work-life balance in public accounting firms, why it often fails. You've got a story about how the IRS is going to try to collect half a trillion more in taxes. So. Got that. Should we start with Lyft since yeah, that's our headline? Let's jump into Lyft. Okay. So this happened four or five days ago, maybe at the end of last week. Lyft released their earnings and their stock shot up to a 52-week high almost instantly. A and lot, then, right? Like, like, how much did the stock go up? All-time high. Uh, almost 60%. It's always confusing to me because like they, they measure after hours trades differently than day, you know, but it hit a 52 week high. Maybe that's an easier way to say it. And in general, I think the report was okay. 
it was a decent report. But what happened was they had a typo. And is this related to why the stock shot up? This is why the stock shot up. There was a typo in the earnings release, the press release. And it wasn't discovered until people were asking questions about it in the conference call. You know, the earnings call, which is usually never the same day. It's usually the next day or two or three days later, right? People were asking right. about it. And then they discovered it. And then the internal team member, uh, her jaw dropped and they, they corrected the press release. But essentially what, what this was, in their press release, they have their fiscal 24 directional commentary section. And I'll read the, the line. They said, adjusted EBITDA margin expansion calculated as a percentage of gross bookings of approximately 500 basis points year over year. So they said 500 basis points instead of 50 basis points. So that's like saying um, a half a percent versus 5%. And this is gross margin. I guess. that You're the accountant. Is that what? what did you, I, I missed what you said. Okay, it's so, so it's the... EBITDA margin expansion calculated as a percentage oh. of gross bookings. EBITDA. So yeah. they're saying that their earnings went up 5%. As a percentage of the gross bookings. Okay. Yeah. That's like, that's really good. So, so that's why so the so the stock jumped on that news. It's jumped on that news. And then I'm thinking they discovered on the conference call and I've been through I've sat through a lot my fair share of conference calls and listened to earnings reports like this and they feel very rehearsed. Like there's never a question from an uh somebody in the press or an analyst that they don't have the answer to. Right? right? The the CEO or CFO whoever's on that conference call. So now the, uh, the CEO went on to, uh, CEO David uh, Reicher, he went on CNBC and talked about how a thousand eyes were on this. Like, they don't know how this was missed. <laughs> An extra zero, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm kind of like stepping back and thinking like, how did this get through, right, on this press release? And then I was thinking, was this something AI could have detected? Maybe is the reason it's there is because AI wrote the press release. You know, I was kind of thinking <laughs> on those paths. So I said, all right, let's do this. So I took the press release. I put the extra zero back in and I gave it to ChatGPT and Claude and neither one. I said, hey, are there any anomalies or things that I should be raised concerned about? Neither yeah. one recognized this as being an issue. Well, you'd now, have to give it the financials as well. So I didn't give the full financials, but the press right. release has like summary. I would be really center. curious if you gave it the full financial statements, like the the SEC filing, and you gave it the press release. Could it detect any errors in the press release? Yeah, and and what's weird is asking just about the um, ranges for uh, basis points. It, it'll actually give an example of here's an acceptable range or a normal range for the. EBITDA ones, right? So it, so it provides, it knows in context what it should be, but in the context of the whole release, it doesn't know. Yeah. Well, so, so, and this is a big difference. Like this is a, this is 10 times more profit than they. That's a percentage it, of bookings. Yeah. The press yeah, release is saying that our profit is 10 times better than it really is. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, that's what happened here. And so then I was like, okay, what if I ask it just to focus on that line? So I asked Claude to focus on that line and Claude basically made, almost gave me arguments of it's convincing of itself or trying to convince me why the number was valid, the 500. Hmm. Like, well, maybe they had good growth and this happened and they're a tech company and all of these other reasons. So I just, the conclusion is AI didn't pick this up as being an anomaly. So how could a thousand other eyeballs pick it up? 
right? I don't know. Yeah, but, well, uh, again, I think you need to give the AI more information to really test this because with just the press release, there's no reason to to think that this is not possible, that Lyft couldn't have had 500 basis points improvement in EBITDA. So let me, uh, I'll add this to the share. Let me add this so you can see the what's in the press release. I mean, unless there's conflicting numbers in the press release itself, that but but the press release is based on the financial statements, right? The numbers in the financials. Okay, so it does so have some in there. Yeah. Okay, so it has the EBITDA number. It has the adjusted EBITDA. I guess that is that what we're let's just assume that's what we're talking about for now. Um, yeah. So it has the three months ended and the year ended. So I guess the question is, what is the comparison that we're making here? And I can see how AI would have trouble parsing this. Unless it even had if, all the data for the whole thing. I don't know. Even if the question is, is that chart that's in there, is, does that provide the comparative data you need to calculate that headline number, adjusted EBITDA? Did they fix it in the press release, by the way? They, they uh, fixed the press release, and there's a little paragraph at the top that says they adjusted it, but it's a Interesting. Right here. Yeah. Okay, so we found something. That AI can't uh, can't track, can't can't catch an extra zero. What's interesting is that the stock price has uh, stayed up, even though it was corrected. So why is that? Well, in general, the numbers were decent. Right. Like this might have been a legit typo, but obviously there's going to be investigation, and I think there's already class action lawsuits. And of course, you know, that's how I wonder do these days. Yeah, I wonder. Like, will there be consequences to lift for this? If it's if it's an honest mistake, I don't think that uh, there would be necessarily. But you could see how like a company could manipulate their stock price with a typo in the with future. Yes. So if there aren't any consequences, then the question is like, well, can't anybody do this and just claim feign ignorance? <laughs> say it was a typo. mistake. I don't know. Yes. Um, well, thank you for bringing that to the show, David. Fascinating example. I wonder if anyone will lose their job. Definitely some, a mistake you don't want to make as a CFO or a controller or a chief accounting officer, that's for sure. Uh, perhaps a career-limiting mistake. Who, who proofread this? This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. Forbes and CNBC rank OnPay number one for small business payroll. OnPay really knows how to get payroll done right for every client you serve, no matter how complex. Their software is easy to use and backed by outstanding service levels. They handle new client onboarding for free and have experts on call to keep you and your clients on track. The system includes multi-state payroll, local tax filings, integrated HR tools, and more with no hidden fees. When you join OnPay's partner program, you get a custom dashboard to easily manage all clients in one place. Plus, you gain exclusive perks like revenue sharing or discounts, free payroll for your firm, co-branding opportunities, premium swag, and more. OnPay helps you run your practice efficiently while providing exceptional payroll that all your clients can count on. To learn more about using OnPay for your firm and clients that may be farms, startups, restaurants, bars, doctors, nonprofits, gyms, franchisees, or dentists, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash OnPay. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. Anyway, let's let's go on. We got to talk about the Trump court decision in New York State. This is the case that has been dragging on for a while. 
I guess in the context of, you know, how long most cases take, this one didn't take that that long. Um, thank you to Ray for sending me the decision and some uh, of his favorite quotes from it. Um, the decision was 92 pages. So I fed this into AI and I asked for a summary of it as well. And this is the thing that I love using Claude for. It's my favorite AI application is I can take a big court decision and I can say, give me an executive summary. And then I can ask questions about the document and it gives me really detailed answers. Uh, and if any of these are wrong, I, I invite our listeners to fact check me on this, but I then I have then in many cases gone back into the PDF and I've searched for these particular keywords and I find the answer and it's right. The AI is not misleading me because it's searching just that document and does a great job of summarizing. This is one of the best uses of it. So the court ordered $168 million to be paid by Trump personally and the Trump entities, all reflecting ill-gotten interest savings from loans. That got a lot of headline attention, right? The total amount of money. Uh, additional gorgement, disgorgement. What a great word is that? Addition, additional disgorgement includes $126 million from profits on the sale of the old post office hotel and $60 million from the sale of the Ferry Point golf course contract. So... You know, hundreds of millions of dollars, right, of financial penalties. And why? Because the court found the defendants liable for fraud and conspiracy to commit fraud through submitting false and misleading valuations of assets uh, and related documents provided to lenders and insurers. This included persistent overvaluation of assets, as well as falsely including non-liquid assets as cash. Now, the question we have asked on this show, and I've wondered about, for months is if there was no, usually a fraud has a victim and Trump's defense has been, well, the banks did just great. Everybody's happy. Everybody made money. They didn't lose money. So how can, how can this be a crime? And the other piece of this that I didn't see until the articles that came out this week about the decision. Um, so remember Eli uh, Bartov, the NYU professor that's been testifying and he's making bank. I think it's probably 900. I think we talked about on the show. We said it grand or something crazy amount of money. Yeah, he's making like a million this. dollars. But apparently he testified. And I didn't pick this up or see this before in, in any reporting. So that they have memos where uh, Deutsche Bank actually scratched down his numbers and changed the values to what they think it was worth anyways. Yeah. So like, and if that's true, I'm like, like was anybody deceived? I don't know. Right. Right? It, it it just feels very outrageous. The the fine amounts are just completely outrageous. So so I asked who the victim is, right? Going okay. back to this victim question, and there is no specific victim identified, but the law in New York State is a little different than common law. So common law fraud, right, which is not written down, right? There, there's common law and then there's like actual statutes, right? And in yep. common law fraud, there is usually a specific victim who relies on fraudulent statements and suffers damages. But this action was brought under New York Executive Law Section 6312, which gives the Attorney General broad authority to seek penalties and injunctive relief when there's evidence of persistent business fraud without needing to prove reliance or harm to a specific victim. Persistent might be the magic word here. Yeah. Persistent business fraud. So this makes me suspect that this will stand on appeal 
like you're not going to be able to appeal and say there was no victim because the law doesn't require there to be a victim. So there wasn't repeated typos. Like, like yeah, it wasn't a one-off thing. This was over and over again. But can you, you know, ex- you, you could. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, can you explain? Because I, I know there's a there's an independent monitor, and like yeah. there's then they have to hire a director of compliance or install a director of compliance. Like, who's the monitor now? I just they just refer to these vague people. Yeah. So the Honorable Barbara Jones, a former federal judge has been appointed as an independent monitor overseeing the Trump Organization's financial reporting for at least three years. And she's already served as a monitor for a year, for over a year under a preliminary injunction order. And she provides regular reports to the court detailing her observations about ongoing issues and lack of financial controls at the Trump Organization. So the court gets to put somebody in the organization to report back. Uh, Her authority, though, is now enhanced. She will review and approve financial disclosures to third parties in advance to prevent fraud or material misstatements. So when Trump, when the Trump organization wants to apply for a loan, this independent monitor is going to review it to make sure that it's accurate. So then the banks can just, hey, it's it's been, it's verified, or it's, uh, what's the the stamp on all the social media now, like verified true or whatever? Like she's going to give it the approval and then the banks... They could fire somebody now because they don't need somebody to look into the details on these applications. Yeah. Uh, so that's the independent monitor, basically make, ch- checking everything that goes out of the Trump organization from a financial reporting standpoint. And then there's also an independent director of compliance that the court has ordered to be installed at the Trump organization. Uh, this person will ensure good financial and accounting practices establish written internal protocols over financial reporting, and approve any financial disclosures to third parties. So this person will have oversight and authority over the financial reporting process and uh, make recommendations on improving practices and will report to the independent monitor. So you've got the independent director of compliance reporting to the independent monitor. And the independent monitor is going to recommend candidates and the Trump organization will have to pay them appropriate or reasonable compensation, which I assume will be determined by the independent monitor or if there's a problem with the court. So really the court now has two people, will now have two people inside the Trump organization overseeing, reporting on all this financial stuff. Trump is not going to like that. No. I feel like that's even worse than the uh, financial penalty for him. Then of course, there's all the previously reported issues where, uh, you know, like Trump and his sons are not going to be able to like be the CEO of the company, run the company directly themselves. Yeah, they can't officially serve as an officer, but that's, mm-hmm. and I always think, I feel like that feels like, you know, in the the movies about the mafia, even though the mafia got by, the boss is in jail, he's still kind of running things on the street. Like, like I, 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 I seriously doubt like they're just like, okay, I'm not going to be involved. I don't know how that works. Where do we go from here, David? I'd like to follow up. So last week you talked about, and you've been talking about this as it's been a burgeoning issue, is the commercial real estate. And it's how it's going to start showing up and affecting balance sheets places. Right, right. Which all ties into this idea that people are working remotely, like you and me, David. We work from home. We don't go to an office. Uh, Offices are at like, it depends on where you are in the country, but let's just say 50% where they used to be. And that's putting a lot of pressure on landlords. And landlords borrowed the money. They have mortgages on these office buildings. And they're not going to be able to pay back the loans when the loans come due. And, and you've predicted the, financial doom because of this. 
right? Potentially. I mean, there's banks that could go under. Uh, if a bank has, you know, say 20% of its loans are commercial real estate, and we, we talked about last week how only something like 25% of them are being paid off in full. Yeah. Like that 75% of your loans could be delinquent. You might end up owning a bunch of commercial real estate that's not worth what it used to be. Like the banks could be undercapitalized. Yeah. But and- I, I, this is, and this is the important accounting thing. The, the, you don't see it on the bank balance sheet because the banks are allowed to classify these as held to maturity in yeah. a lot of cases, Right. So that, that's the summary. Where you might see this that you didn't bring up is taxes. So this article just came out this week, and they have a whole PDF with graphs, and we'll scroll through this. But uh, Boston's Policy Institute um, issued a PDF talking about the fallout of Boston's empty offices and how it's going to cause a $1 billion tax shortfall for the city of Boston. $1 billion for the city of Austin because the offices are empty – and, the offices and, are empty. More than one third of their revenue comes from commercial property taxes. Wow. And you can see this over time, how it's just over time since 2002, this graph just keeps going up to um, almost 75% of their total revenue is coming in from property tax collections. Wow. So they're going to have to raise taxes elsewhere. There's, there's. And then they also show like versus other cities. We're good in Phoenix. You're good in Phoenix. Wow, it's only, commercial uh, it's like property one of the lowest. Yeah, lowest. commercial property tax is like almost zero here. That's fantastic. Um, Boston is leading. Dallas is in second. Um, the amount that they depend on it, but is, by far, Boston is almost two x of everybody else. I'm confused by this chart here, David. This percentage okay. here is that the percentage of the taxes? Okay, that's the percentage of tax collections that are related At, of, of overall, right? Okay. Of your overall budget. So this is like crazy because I've heard. From. So Boston. That's crazy that Boston's okay. So it's not their commercial property taxes that are seventy something percent. It's all their property taxes put together are over seventy percent of their tax collections. See how there's the green. There's the oh, yeah, this is all property tax on this all chart. property yeah, so tax. Some, yeah, this so, chart was so property. If you tax. scroll down to the breakdown, you'll see that commercial property though is still like uh, just under forty percent of tax yeah. collections. So. That if if you take that forty percent, let's say only half of the offices are occupied now, that's like a twenty percent reduction in their total tax base. Yeah, so they start to project this out over the next couple of years here. I'm just doing napkin math here, people. Yeah, and so over five years, it's going to be a tax shortfall of about one point four billion dollars. Wow. So this is the. Thank you for bringing this to the show, David, because. It's mirroring this issue that we're seeing on bank balance sheets, where what if 20% of the bank's you know, assets, these, these loans that they've given out, are actually not there? Yeah. And so I Googled a little bit about trying to figure out who the largest tenants are right, in Boston. So WeWork had a blog post in 2020, literally titled, How WeWork Became the Largest Tenant in Boston. Oh, and we no. know that WeWork's kind of uh, basically under the table now. They're in trouble. And then, but guess what? There could be a savior here. Guess who just signed the biggest lease last year? Who's that? In Boston for office space. Deloitte. <laughs> so accounting firm, because I think, is, isn't Boston like a big- uh, a It's lot a tech of hub. It's, Well, tech, but it's also the accounting 
big four, right? Yeah. They have huge offices there. The, a lot the of consulting, right? Because you've got, <clears throat> got MIT, you got Harvard, right? People yeah. come out of school and they go work for these consulting firms. <clears throat> they want to stay close to campus. So maybe accounting firms will uh, save <laughs> the city of Boston. I don't know about them. that. I've heard that some of the big four are cutting their office space, like uh, in certain areas. So maybe maybe and Deloitte's this was a just, move. Deloitte moved from another building, apparently. Yeah, so. maybe Deloitte's just capitalizing on the the lack of uh, tenants, right? The the de- the the high supply, low demand. Yeah, probably got a great deal. This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Cloud Accountant Staffing. In case you've missed the last hundred episodes or so. Blake and I have been discussing almost weekly that there's an accountant's labor shortage. Regardless of the root cause, the problem is real. My social media feeds are full of firms attempting to fill open positions on their teams, but how can anyone increase their staff size if everyone is attempting to hire during a labor shortage? That is where cloud accountant staffing comes in. They'll help you hire full-time team members for your firm that reside in the Philippines. How much would your firm change, or for that matter, your life, if you could add 40, 80, 120 hours of capacity to your firm in 2024. Cloud Accountant Staffing was founded by a firm owner who grew his firm using offshore talent, and now he's applying everything he learned to help you grow your firm. If your firm is in need of expert bookkeepers, accountants, CPAs, or virtual assistants, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash cast. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-A-S. Where do we go from there? Let's talk about some... uh... Generative AI stuff. How are companies using Gen, I, Gen AI to improve their businesses? Wall Street Journal podcast um, gave some great examples recently. Early adopters like Cisco and Ally Financial are using generative AI for applications like making help desks more efficient, summarizing customer service calls, generating code snippets for software developers, and more. So I'm, I'm talking about this because. A lot of people ask me, who work in accounting firms, like, how can we actually use this in operations? I understand we could use it for sales, for marketing, for generating blog content, all that fun stuff, right? But how do we actually, like, operationalize AI? I think customer service is a great example, and and that's an operational thing, right? Like, the way you interact with clients. Uh, Help desks, right? Responding to questions, that sort of thing. Automating replies to common questions. These early adopters are seeing productivity lifts of 10 to 20% from simple deployment of existing tools with generative AI features. More complex redesign of critical functions like software development, marketing, and customer service is yielding 30 to 50% productivity gain, gains. But is operationalizing it the, the best route? And because I'm thinking like that's going to take a bigger effort, an organized team, and only a small percentage of your entire staff might benefit from that versus more of a non-operational rollout where you kind of get everybody up to speed a little bit to where people, one person here, they figure out a way to save two weeks a year. Another person saves two or three weeks a year. Like, yeah. Isn't that the big, I, I, would, I, just, I would think almost the non-formal way might have a bigger bang. Um, even for us with our work, right? Like I used, I did something with ChatGTP, created a formula, one formula for Google in a Google sheet that- yeah. It would have took me a week to figure out on my own with blog posts and things like that. And then it's saving our operations person two full people weeks a year, right? But I use ChatGPT. So it's not yeah. operated. I'm never, it's done, right? Once the work's yeah. done, it's not I, really operationalized. And that's what I mean by that. That's true. I, I guess there's that, yeah, there, there are two different types of AI 
deployments, right? One is you give the tool to your individuals and you let them automate their work. And the other is you do mass scale automation. And the cost of these mass scale deployments, I think will mean that most accounting firms will be doing what you did, David, which is giving it to their people and letting them figure out how to use it to do Excel stuff or to use existing tools. And just so our listeners know that what you did was really cool. You took uh, a single spreadsheet, a Google sheet, with all of our webinar registration data for Earmark, and you figured out how to create individual sheets. Um, Children's for, sheets, if you want to call it that. Yeah, for each uh, sponsor, right? And it automatically populates from the main sheet. And you know, doing that is not something that's super difficult for somebody with a lot of experience with Excel or with sheets. Yeah, but it's a formula that we were unfamiliar with, and it's a big, long one, right? It's like a bunch of nested stuff, yeah, 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 yeah. right? It would have taken a while to figure out, and you were able to do it just by telling. How did you do it? How did you get the formula? Well, I just flat out said, how do I connect a parent Google Sheet to a bunch of children Google Sheets so data on the parent shows up in the children? That's what, you'd ask formula, Chat, that's what you said to ChatGPT, yeah. and it gave you a formula, yep. and then did, and then did the formula that, just work? I said, work? well, how do I make it dynamic? And then I, you know... And then it gave me an error, and I said, it's giving me this error. But yeah, start to finish, hour and a half. It would have taken me three days, eight hours a day of like messing around with blog posts, researching, yeah. working on bulletin boards, and pumped the whole thing out. Yeah. And, and how much time is it saving us? Two full people weeks a year. Two people weeks a year. And it literally is one formula in one cell. Like yeah. if you think about that, right? Like, like. That's all I had it do is I used it to create one formula that goes into one cell. Yeah. Right? And it's not a big, long it over one. and over again. Big, long one, but it's a yeah. one-time use that's going right. to have a huge benefit that it's not tied. It's not like AI is constantly doing stuff. But that's yeah. to me, that's the bigger bang for the buck is everybody can save a lot of time solving a problem that they have and having yeah. AI just help them. So imagine if you're in an accounting firm with like 100 people, 100 people doing work like this. And you give them all access to ChatGPT teams through your firm. So now you've got data protection and security. That costs you, I think, $20 per user if you pay annually, right? So you're looking at uh, $2,000 a year for those 100 users. And if each of them uses it to save two people weeks a year. If just one person does it. It pays for the cost to pay for the GPT tool. If just one person does it. Oh, by f yeah. <laughs> and so imagine if everyone did it. Now you're saving uh, 200 people weeks a year. That's like four people, right? 50 weeks yeah. a year. So you could save four people for $2,000 a year. That's unbelievable. And, and I would argue that's the better way to implement it. If everybody can get 10 to 20% more efficient because of it, that's a better way to roll AI in your firm than trying to build stuff. Because my, argue, my, my point of view is by the time you build it, some third-party off-the-shelf tool is just going to have that built in and you don't have to build it yourself, right? So it just doesn't make sense to put a financial outlay and to build some custom interactions with AI. Just mm -hmm. have everybody in your staff just do it personally over and over again. That's where the real savings comes, in my opinion. So, so um, before we move on, we should hype my uh, AI webinar recording that I did. Yes. So, on Earmark webinars, I did 
uh, webinar, you can watch it on demand, where I spent an hour just walking through all the different potential use cases of AI in your firm, just showing examples of how you could use it in your accounting firm to do stuff. So if you haven't watched that, um, we put the audio on the Earmark podcast. So you can go subscribe to the Earmark podcast and look for the Practical AI episode. It's called Practical AI. Or even better, you can find it on our YouTube channel, right? Earmark. Search for Earmark on YouTube and Practical AI. So if you just search Earmark Practical AI, you'll find it. Or uh, Blake AI, maybe even. Something like that. And then you can uh, go get CPE on the Earmark app for watching it on demand. So if that's something that's interesting to you, I, you know, like I say, I say this a lot, uh, but I'll keep saying it. The productivity gains from generative AI it's going to be the same as cloud accounting for bookkeeping. So 80% reduction in time to do the same task. Five times productivity bump. Five to 10 times productivity bump on a lot of stuff. Like you cannot miss out on this as an accountant. You will be the dinosaur that's still, you know, using the 10 key calculator to, to do your work instead of a spreadsheet, right? That, that's, that's, that's where yeah. we're at. It's, it's that massive, right? It's yeah. like a calculator. This, yeah. is, this is the next generation. This is as big as the electronic spreadsheet. So I have a negative AI story about how companies are using uh, AI to monitor their employee messages. So, and these are big companies, Walmart, Delta, Chevron, um, T-Mobile, Starbucks, uh, in the EU, Nestle and uh, AstraZeneca. So they basically are getting, the, you know, obviously it's being spun up as a way to like get your employee's sentiment in real time. So uh -huh. maybe you rolled out, you had a, a new product offering, you could get the employee's sentiment by monitoring all their chats. But we all know it's really to just buy on your competitor. Your employees? And, uh, well, the employees. How are they using it is the question, I guess. Like, what are they using and, it for? And, and this is the crazy thing. So the comp the, one of the companies that's doing this, it's called Aware. Their revenue has jumped 150% per year on average the last five years. And the typical customer has about 30,000 employees. So these are massive Fortune uh, 500 companies that are rolling out this to their employees. And then I start to think, how many, it's really yucky, but I guarantee you there's accounting firms that are doing this. There's no way they're not. Oh, well, every employee should know that when you type something into Slack and it's owned by your company or Microsoft Teams or whatever it is, like that is in the record. That is being yeah. preserved. Unless you're in a really tiny firm that doesn't do this, if you're in any firm of any size, that's being preserved for the record. And while people haven't really looked at messages in the past, I, I, firm owners do. You have to. You have to keep an eye on what your people are doing. And there's an argument to be made that this is important because of fraud. You could actually use these tools to detect and prevent yeah. internal fraud, right? Which is usually people colluding within your organization to circumvent controls. But I think it will also be used by managers who just want to, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Like micromanage employees or spy on employees who like, like think about an employee who's thinking about leaving, right? You know, maybe you lay off that person first and, and this AI tool gives you sentiment analysis that tells you who is, you know, happy, who is not. But it could also be used in a good way, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe to determine who isn't happy and hopefully fix the situation because they're an important contributor. So like, I could see this going both ways. 
And I feel like, like you bring up fraud, I feel like four years ago, five years ago or so on the show we covered, there was some pretty big, big fraud or something that happened, but they, uh, everybody involved took the conversations outside of the chat tools to like a WhatsApp or yeah. they basically bypassed the corporate messaging. I just, I just don't have any details well, on that. If any listeners remember that story, please tell us who that was. And I think if you use these AI tools in a way that employees perceive as being unfair, that's what they'll do. Yep. They'll take their conversations out of the tool and then you'll lose the benefit. Potentially, which, you know, is what uh, politicians do, right? They don't use email. They don't even text if they're smart. They have other people do it for them. It's all back channel. Yep. All back channel, yeah. This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Webgility. Webgility is the number one QuickBooks connector for multi-channel sellers and the accountants who support them. Designed specifically for e-commerce and multi-channel sellers, Webgility seamlessly integrates over 50 platforms, including Shopify, Amazon, and Walmart, making it the perfect solution for your clients. Webgility takes the hassle out of e-commerce accounting by automating the flow of data into QuickBooks. Sales, returns, expenses, fees, and inventory are all accurately recorded, ensuring your clients' financials are always up to date and tax compliant, allowing you to stay out of the e-commerce weeds and instead focus on the high-value added consulting services. Webgility isn't just about software, it's about partnership. As a Webgility certified partner, you'll gain access to exclusive benefits like co-marketing activities, additional revenue streams, free expert onboarding so there's no hassle getting your clients set up. With comprehensive training and unparalleled support, you'll be equipped to deliver even more value to your e-commerce clients, helping them run more profitable businesses. Don't let manual accounting tasks slow you down. To join the thousands of accounting professionals who trust Webgility to streamline their e-commerce accounting, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash Webgility. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash W-E-B-G-I-L-I-T-Y. I've got a story about the 150-hour rule. So um, trigger warning for our listeners who are uh, tired of the issues facing our profession. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it, but not too long. I just want to highlight a video from the New York, not New York, I apologize, New Jersey CPA Society. Uh, they did a survey, and then they put together a video on their YouTube channel uh, talking about it. So I'm going to see if I can share this and play this. And I apologize. I've forgotten. Um, I don't have the names handy of all three people in this video. But I think uh, this gentleman here introduces himself at the beginning. Hi, I'm Don Meyer, Chief Marketing Officer at the New Jersey Society of CPAs. And welcome to the Issues Watch podcast. For the past two decades, prospective CPAs in New Jersey have had to undertake 150 hours of education before becoming licensed. But a declining CPA pipeline has accountants asking, is the 150 now a barrier to becoming a CPA? The additional 30 hours don't have to be specific to accounting or related disciplines, and some believe that the additional year of education and associated costs are discouraging potential accounting students and those who may sit for the CPA exam. Is it time to reimagine how we prepare CPAs for an increasingly evolving profession? We recently asked NJCPA members to weigh in on the 150-hour requirement. Here with me to discuss the reactions is NJCPA CEO and Executive Director, A.J. Johnson. Welcome, A.J. Thanks, glad to be here. And Vice President of Government Relations, Jeff Kasman. Welcome, Jeff. Great to be here, Don. All right, so Jeff, I know you're... All right, so I'm gonna skip ahead here to the results. They've put them on the screen, which is very helpful. 
Yeah, this uh, just uh, as you're scrolling through this for our audio listeners, the video feels like it's from like 1994. Like, there's just something about the style of the stage setup and the way they're sitting. Yeah. Yeah, the resolution could be uh, improved, I think. Uh, but let's not let that distract us. Um, so here is here is uh, one of the slides at about the six-minute mark. More than 40% of the 1,060 members surveyed say that new hires working in accounting-related roles and without 150 hours of education rarely or never pursue the CPA certification. So, in other words... If you don't have the 150 hours of education already and you go to work, you are extremely unlikely to pursue the CPA. Now, next survey data point, 62% of survey respondents see no noticeable difference in preparedness of staff who have accounting degrees with 120 credit hours versus those who have 150 credit hours. So no noticeable difference in the quality of these staff. Extra year of education and, makes no difference. And this is interesting because I feel like I've seen professors argue that there is. But of course. This, this is firm owners, right? You're paying employees. You're going to yeah. know who's worth the money and not worth the money. But like, You're going to know better than an accounting professor, and, I'll and, tell you that. Exactly, yeah. Now, here's the big one. 80%, nearly 80% of survey respondents believe it would be beneficial to the profession to provide alternative pathways to certification where 150 hours is one option, but not the only option. So just as we've seen in Arizona, what was the other state that did a survey? I forgot. Minnesota did one. There was another one that came out recently. All the surveys have agreed. It's like 80% or near near 80%. And, and you were saying it, the industry is probably 80% even before these surveys came out. So yeah. Kudos to you being, you know. Well, and some of our listeners, some of our listeners gave me intel on this and said, "Hey, uh, one of our listeners was at a BDO Alliance meeting of managing partners and said the same thing. It was like eighty percent." Now, uh, Jeff Kazerman, um, he gave some insight in the episode into like what's going on at AICP and NASB, and I believe it's around the seventeen-minute mark. I'm going to try to find this. So, so while you're finding that. I'm thinking about the pipeline report because that's coming out here in May, right? I from the AICPA. From the AICPA's pipeline report. Yeah. If they don't come out and show data that 8% of the members think this, they're going to probably lose a lot of credibility because now all the states are beating them to the data point to yeah. some extent. So if they don't have data that's close to that, you'd have to question the whole report. Yeah, or I'd wonder about maybe AICPA members are different than state society members because we know that um, it's actually not the yeah. majority of CPAs are not members of the ICPA anymore. It's like yeah. a third or less. So it's a smaller group, and I wonder if they're out of touch. We'll find out. Because in New Jersey's program, you don't have to take any coursework. Right. So nobody really saw that as a, um, as, as a solution. But I will say the good news is from the last that I've heard, there seems to be some agreement or acceptance by NASBA and AICPA that there's got to be another option for the, the 150. And from what I've heard, the latest that they're coalescing around is uh, a concept where, okay, you get your 120 credits, and then you need to get two years of experience, but that experience has to fit some sort of measurable program. Right. 
right. that would be uh, administered, let's say, I don't know if it would be the AICPA or who, who would say, well, what you need to have two years of experience, you can get paid for it, and we're not necessarily going to call it credits, but you have to learn this, learn that, do this, we're, you know. Yeah, well, it's all part of a concept that they're looking at now, so I'm sure that more information will right. come out on, as to what that really looks like, but I think the point is at least they're having the conversation. Yeah. So this concerns me, this worries me. Oh, because good, because I was smiling a little bit. I was like, oh, it's finally happening, but no. Okay. Well, it's good. Like, I think this indicates that in May, we're going to see a report that says we need an alternative pathway. My concern is that as they tend to do with everything, they're going to overcomplicate it. So now we're going to have more red tape around getting the right amount of experience, which is going to turn a lot of people off. If the current experience requirement is acceptable, why would you make the alternative experience requirement different? We all agree, and I would actually love to see this in surveys, we all agree that an, a year of experience is more valuable than a year of education. Like an extra year of experience is more valuable than a year of education to a CPA. The current one year of experience is more valuable than education. Like we certainly wouldn't say, hey, let's get rid of the one year experience requirement and add another year to education. So now it's six years of education, that's better. No, nobody would agree with that, right? And many people agree that if we swap the current extra year of education and go back to having two years of experience, that would be better. So why the need to create a more onerous experience requirement? There is not. It's already well, better. Well, that's the job of governing bodies, right? That's what keeps them uh, valuable, quote unquote, right? and by having rules and enforcements and hoops to jump through. Yeah. But you're right. I think if there, if if it's done not the right way, if there's just as many hoops to jump through, or people see it as stupid hoops to jump through, that's going to be a turn off, and it's not going to actually move the needle. And the current experience requirement is already onerous. It's already very difficult for people working in industry who don't work in public accounting to get the experience because it has to be under the direct supervision of a CPA in many states. And they can't because their manager doesn't happen to be a CPA. So I would be very disappointed if NASBA and AICPA come back with a, a plan to, to, to do this, which is good, but then do it in a way that is adds complexity and cost that doesn't need to be there. Like the current experience requirement, if that is good enough, and it was good enough for all the CPAs out there who got licensed under 120 plus two years of experience, leave it be. We don't need your help. You know, accounting firm owners, we train our staff. We don't need you poking in to our businesses, telling us how to train our staff, especially when you are professional association managers who have never run an accounting firm in your life and have no idea how to even run a business because you've only ever worked in nonprofits. These people do not, they should not be telling us how to run our businesses, how to run our firms. They have no clue. Yeah, I, I, that, that thought process was going through my head. Um, you know, we've talked about in the past how chartered accountants of a Canada, chartered professional accountants of Canada is splitting right? Quebec and Ontario are splitting and the root cause was those two provinces have the most paying members. So they wanted the budget accordingly shifted over to them. 
and there's a big debate. They had layoffs, but before they had their layoffs, the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada has 400 employees before the cuts. And I was just like, if they have 400, how much does AICPA have? And like, what are these people doing? It just feels like that's a lot. That's a big organization. That's just a lot of employees. Like, it's just like, what's everybody doing? It's <laughs> a good question, David. And so then like, what is the number for AICPA? 2,041 employees. 2,000 employees. That's massive. I know. They're huge. And yet it would be too difficult. It would take 20 years to go back to 120 hours plus two years of education. Even with 2,000 employees working on it. Well, the more employees doesn't actually make this going to be faster. <laughs> you actually want to have less work on it. That's how uh, things done. We got to talk about the IRS collecting half a trillion more in taxes before we go, David. I have exactly five minutes before I have to jump. I have so it got, open. We can you got jump five right minutes in. to talk about it. How's the IRS going to plug the uh, tax gap? So remember, they got their $80 billion, right? was approved for the IRS. Hey, there's $80 billion in funding. Well, it chipped away, and maybe now it's like maybe $40 million by the time it's been all you know negotiated away as, as that's been happening. But a part of that was, remember, they were going to only target people with incomes over 400000 for audits. They were really trying to increase what they're going after. And, you know, up to, the, up to this time now, they've uh, targeted 1,600 millionaires that owed 250000 or more in back taxes. And they have collected about a half a billion dollars so far. But their efforts overall, they're expecting to collect $561 billion more from these new efforts and the technology, basically, so the $80 billion investment, assuming they got the full $80 billion, is gonna result in a half a trillion dollars in revenue, these extra efforts that they're doing. Um, but it still is a long ways to go. For example, if you look at tax year uh, 2021, the difference between the taxes owed and the taxes paid, just that one year is 688 billion. So they've got a long ways to go because it's almost six, it's basically almost a half a trillion every year they got to go and chase. Wow. So, but overall, these new efforts. So, half a trillion dollars on an $80 billion investment, that's a pretty good deal. Like, like who wouldn't make that investment, right? <laughs> it's a good question, David. We don't have time to answer that today. No, no. Uh, thank you, everyone who joined us live. We appreciate you. Uh, you can follow us on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, and get notified when we go live, and chat with us. Uh you can also take our listener survey. Let us know what you think. Let us know what topics are important to you. Go to accounting.show slash survey. Over 100 of you have taken the time to do this survey, and that's really awesome. We appreciate it. Uh, we'd love to get that up to like 200, and um, we'll share the results, I think, soon enough when we feel like we've got a you know, representative sample. The the numbers kind of keep changing a little bit, and I'm not I'm hesitant to like report on anything when when another, you know, 30 results might change the results significantly. So uh, let's get some more. Go to accounting.show slash survey. Anything else we need to remind our listeners of, David, before we go? They should uh, write reviews on Apple Podcast or on oh, Spotify yeah. or on Podchaser. Write reviews. We got one. Uh, follow us on social media. Install the Earmark app. We, we could go on for another hour of all the things we need our listeners to do. <laughs> we got a new review. And I'm going to read it. And if you leave okay. us a review, I will read it. Appreciate appreciate the strong points of view. Five stars. This is from Brown4 on Apple Podcasts. 
I'm so glad I found this podcast. After 10 years as a small business controller, I am getting into consultancy and trying to catch up on all the news I missed. I love that viewpoints are stated with integrity and with conviction. Thank you. Thank you, Brown, for for listening. We appreciate you. We appreciate all our listeners. And don't forget, you can earn free CPE with the Earmark app. And big news, there's a new version of the Earmark app coming in March. And it is new and improved, and it's glorious, and it is smooth scrolling. It's my favorite part. I know it's so stupid, but it's just it's just buttery smooth when it scrolls. And I'm really looking forward to releasing that. We re- we rewrote the whole app from scratch. From scratch to eliminate all of our technical debt. So our 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 IT systems have zero debt on the balance sheet, and we can scale and grow uh, from here. with with all the new features. Yeah, it's going to enable us to add all those features that you've all been asking for. So, very excited. All right, I got to jump, David. Great chatting with you. Uh, See you next week. Time for the classifieds. Ever wonder what your cast tech stack should be? Ever wonder how profitable a CAS firm is? Ever wonder what CAS, C-A-A-S, and CAS 2.0 are? You should read Luke Templin's new newsletter called the CAS Cash. The CAS Cash newsletter is designed to help accounting firms grow their CAS offerings. The subscription is free. Head to cas.behive.com. That is cas.behiv with two eyes.com. Want to make learning QuickBooks Online a breeze for your staff or clients while pocketing some extra cash? RoyalWise.com's Owls platform is the perfect solution with over 100 hours of in-depth QuickBooks training content spanning more than 40 topics. Join the partner program and become a vital link in the education chain. Share custom affiliate links with your bookkeeping team and small business clients and see the rewards roll in with every successful referral. You're not just earning cash, you're connecting your network to valuable CP credits and lessons led by one of Ignition's top 50 women in accounting, Alicia Cap. Enhance your service offerings and earn with each referral. Join today, royalwise.com slash partner. That's royalwise.com slash partner. Stop settling for slow payments and say hello to the future of AR with Forwardly. Accounts that use Forwardly can receive payments in less than 22 seconds. Yes, under 22 seconds via the newly launched FedNow network. And if your bank or a client's bank doesn't yet use FedNow, Forwardly will send the payment via same-day ACH for free. To get paid in under 22 seconds, go to forwardly.com. That's forwardly.com. Most firm owners are busier than they want to be because they feel like they have to work long hours to keep their firms running. But according to CPA Ryan Lozanis, that's not necessary. Ryan built a multi-seven-figure firm that didn't require him to work nights or weekends, and just five years after starting his firm, Ryan sold it to a major international organization for a hefty profit. His secret is a special six-part system, and right now he's teaching 700-plus busy firm owners to implement this system in their own firms, so they can scale revenue and spend more time with family and friends. Learn more about Ryan's special six-part system that lets firm owners grow their revenue and their free time. Go to futurefirmaccelerate.com slash C-A-P. That's futurefirmaccelerate.com slash C-A-P. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.